first, I want to um, express my gratitude, beginning with the earth. The earth gives us these bodies through which we experience this world, this life. Every molecule in the body comes from the earth. And at the end of our lives, we return back to the surface of the earth. You know, because of the cultures we've grown up in, we don't realize this, but we are completely a part of the earth. So honoring her in gratitude for these bodies and gratitude for the ancestors of the lands, wherever we are, you know, across the country, or if some of us are out of this country, there were native people there before colonialism, people who knew how to live in balance, who knew right relationship with other life forms. So gratitude for that generation of ancestors and for the knowledge that their descendants are carrying at this time, which we will really need, are using and will continue to need to use and learn from. And then um, calling in, you know, our own ancestors individually, um, our biological ancestors, our spiritual ancestors, the ancestors that we're connected to. Whenever human beings gather with this kind of intention, the benefit generated transcends time. So, in um, praying for their support so that what we do has the greatest benefit for the whole and that the healing goes backwards and forwards so that the future generations benefit and the generations that came before that went through so much suffering that they receive some of the healing as well. And gratitude for Spirit Rock and what's evolved in relationship to this retreat over these 21 years and all the people that have contributed to making this possible and our individual support staff this time and Noli Way in particular for organizing this and the other teachers. Just so much um, gratitude for this moment that all of you made this possible. So, so far, you know, everyone who's spoken before, we're all... Um, trying to articulate something about this time that we're in. And the theme that I would like to explore during this time here is the theme of refuge. And it's an exploration that I want to do very broadly, not just in terms of Buddhist terms, but just in a, in a, in a bigger field than that. And so it all folds in, you know, um, and you'll see... How, how that works. So as others have mentioned, you know, we have these two threads of things that we're kind of dealing with acutely um, right now. 
One is the changes brought on by this worldwide pandemic. There's never been a pandemic like this because there, the, as humans have been traveling further and further and more and more connecting different parts of the world, then when something like this happens, it just spreads. And so the world has never been impacted all at once like we are today. And um, in a certain way, humanity has been stopped in its tracks. And um, as I was mentioning before, from the tradition from Peru, the indigenous Quechua tradition, and talking about what this time is about, the Pachacuti, the change of times. And one of the things that this teacher, uh, Arkan Lushuala, was mentioning it's also that we're witnessing just how resilient the earth actually is. And I remember early on in the pandemic in Italy, I saw a picture of a wild boar walking down an Italian street that was deserted of people. And somehow just seeing that wild boar on this sort of cobbled street, a light bulb went on in me, like, this is really, really significant. And what, um, what Arkin was saying is that as humanity pulls back, as we restrain, restrain ourselves, the original inhabitants of these different territories are coming forward. And so the last thing that I saw about a week and a half ago, a mountain lion walking the streets of San Francisco, right underneath the Salesforce Tower. I've never heard of such a thing. A mountain lion walking in the, in, at night in downtown San Francisco, downtown. And like that, there's just stories from all over the world about the, uh, what we call animals, those, the relatives that fly and walk on four legs and, and swim and so on, their behavior is so changed and it's palpable. We see it. So um, yesterday when I was well, working on this talk, I had the back door open and this had never happened before, but a little bird flew in from the back door all the way to the dining room where I was and, uh, and then just sort of perched itself in front of a window on the inside because the window was closed, so I had to eventually open it. But I, I, I'd never seen that happen before. So um, all these things I don't take for granted. I really listen to all of that. And so um, right now, I feel like the whole natural world, the earth and all of nature is... Um, is right there, ready for a dialogue with us, if we can enter into that respectfully. And part of our suffering um, is our sense of disconnection. You know, many of us grew up in urban settings, and some people actually, even being in nature, feels a little bit scary. Um, but they've done studies, and two hours in the natural world surrounded by green, our own immune cells go up. T cells actually reproduce in higher numbers and have better functioning just from being 
in the natural environment. That's what we are sort of genetically geared for. So along with what's happened with the pandemic, and there's a lot more fallout, and in particular how it impacts people of color and you know, those who have no access to health care in all sorts of different parts of the world. You know, people who are in disadvantaged positions are being impacted much more intensely. So holding, holding that in our hearts. And then the other thread of what's going on in our country anyway, is becoming aware the the mainstream becoming aware of the underlying violence and the oppression. And that's sort of such a part of the fabric of this country that was built, that built its wealth through the genocide of the native people and the enslavement of people from Africa that were extracted from their homelands. And so what's becoming clear with the pandemic and and how the earth is responding is revealing just how this trajectory of this country does not serve life. And so I was remembering a little little quote from uh, Dr. King. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And somehow that truth is being recognized more. The context of the pandemic has humbled even people with tremendous privilege. And we haven't seen the end of it yet. I mean, our economic system is... I'm not sure where where we will end up. We may have to come up with a very different system besides what we have designed so far. And so there's a humbling being uh, that's happening, even though the rhetoric that we see is so toxic sometimes. We, we, we are being uh, guided to learn what serves life and what doesn't. And so I was just listening to Angela Davis. There was an interview at, you know, on BBC. <laughs> and, you know, at this age, she has such maturity and vision and perspective and the long view. And so while we sit with our fear and the trembling and, you know, the sleepless nights and our trauma and having to work with that and all of that, I just feel like we're we're being carried by something that's holding us that's bigger than our than our humanity, and it's this this force of the Pachacuti, you know, this turn, you know, away from the trajectory we were on, this return in the direction of life. So, um, you know, life wants to live, and that impulse is in all of us. Life wants to live. And so how, how do we, how do we, the question, how, how do we be with this moment? And um, there's a poem by um, David, David Wagoner, is a poet from the Pacific Northwest, but there's a poem that he uh, wrote called um, 
lost. But the poem is actually based on advice that Native people would give their children if they were ever lost in the forest. And the poem goes like this. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger. You must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you're surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So the need for refuge. We are social beings. We need we need each other. We need from the time we're born. Um, we need to be held to even know what we are. And so right now we have this field that we've created together. And this is a refuge, just our field. And um, as a humanity, you know, we evolve the consciousness that pervades all of humanity is evolving. And one of the other things that I, I think it's important to mention that Arkan has said is that for this big shift to happen, it's not like most human beings need to recognize these truths. We only need like 500,000 people to actually engage with the earth to connect their hearts to the heart of the earth and to actually listen as deeply as we can. That our capacity to listen is the most important thing right now. So when we have this kind of intention, we actually affect the entire field and move the evolution of the field forward. So Some of you might have heard this before because I, I go over this a lot. You know, in my teaching, I teach not only about how we work with our, or, or what we call in Tibetan, in Dzogchen, ordinary mind, and then timeless awareness, but it's sort of like, how do we understand the depths of what we are beyond the discursive mind and then also working with the discursive mind that needs work. So, so sort of how, how, how we straddle those and then at some point actually uh, understand how they work together and eventually are a reflection of each other. So I often start about describing, you know, how our sense of self develops. 
And so I'll, I'll go over that again. When we are born as newborns, unless there's a lot of perinatal trauma, trauma around the birth or something, and you know the, the baby's uh, nervous system is very, very rattled. If that's not the case, you know, we generally uh, come out um, in, a, in a particular state because there are no concepts in the mind. This is before we even formulate thoughts. The mind without concepts is this wide open presence that has the capacity to know and to know in the sense that it can perceive, you know, all the senses are working, the eyes, the, the felt sense, uh, uh, the hearing. And even though at the beginning, you know, babies can't even quite focus their eyes. So, but they're taking in all of the sensorial experience and they're taking it. We are all taking this in uh, with an utter openness because there's no defense, you know, or strategy to try and like, oh, not this, not that, or yes, this, or there's no grabbing or pushing away. This is way before that. So there's this utter openness. And there's also um, this um, incredible, like, innocence, because there's no strategizing, there's no contrivance. There's just this pure being that's open to experience and things are very simple what hurts we cry and and what what feels really comfortable and then there's just this relaxation that you can see in the baby's face and most of us love being around a baby because they are they are exhibiting this beautiful essence that is um something that you know most of us kind of lose touch with and particularly that original, what in Dzogchen we call the original purity. And the other aspect of it is that we are completely spontaneous. That, um, you know, the, the behavior of a baby is, is completely natural and genuine. So all those qualities that we begin with are in a way part of our true nature. As we recognize our true nature through the process of spiritual development, we come to, to experience that again, except that a baby doesn't have the capacity to reflect and understand what this actually means, you know, the magnitude of those qualities and their meaning. So, um, it's good to be able to reference back to that because then we'd see how that starts getting covered up. So we start that way and then um, we start to have experience. And, you know, difficult experience is unavoidable. And so it starts sort of imprinting and we're, we got this exquisitely vulnerable soul, if you will, that where our, our needs are very... Um, simple, you know, to be held, to be cared for, to be fed, to have our diapers changed. Um, and the vulnerability of the soul at that stage is so exquisite that, you know, a weird look and you'll see a baby sort of recoil. It actually has, a, has an imprint um, on the baby at that stage. 
And so, but little by little, we, we accumulate experience. And as we accumulate experience and the brain develops and we develop the capacity to make thoughts. And then after we start making thoughts and we start putting together, oh, when this happens, then this happens. And we start joining uh, understanding. And as our understanding starts growing and growing by... Um, by accumulating experience and then trying to make sense out of it. And so as this goes on, eventually, and especially, you know, we start getting narratives from the culture, the, how we're being received within the family later on, how we're being received in school and the greater culture, and depending on who we are and our race and our class and orientations of different kinds, it, it, the imprints are just tremendous. And so as we accumulate all this imprinting, we start to forget that non-conceptual awareness that was our ground of being. We just forget. I, I was talking to my granddaughter last night who lives far away. She's 16 now. When she was six years old, there was a little tree in her backyard and she would get on that tree and she'd start talking to each branch and she had names for each branch. And so I was asking her last night if she remembered that and she didn't remember it. So this is 10 years later, she already forgot that she used to do that, which makes me sad. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, as we accumulate all this experience, we start to, I think that's us this collection of past experiences becomes our identity. And so it's like the, the awareness just gravitates and hangs on to the stories as who we are. And there's very little in the culture to remind us that there's anything else. You know, we live in a very secular culture and sometimes even our own spiritual dogmas don't allow for the um, empowerment that's involved in knowing <coughs> what our true nature actually is. So then, you know, coming to our Buddhist path, we, um, we use the term of taking refuge. It's like a formal way of coming in to Buddhism. And we have some traditional refuges that we take. We, and I'm going to talk to them and talk about them in the sense of what they seem on the surface and more obvious and then what they can be in a deeper sense. So the first refuge is we take refuge in the Buddha. And the historical Buddha, this amazing human being that after leaving the world that he belonged to, was so determined to understand reality, really, that he just put himself through all of these different experiences and trying one thing and that didn't work and try something else and just this sheer determination and finally seeing through into the absolute nature of life and the teachings. So we take refuge at the beginning on this historical person and some of what the other teachers were mentioning, um, when we take refuge, it's also other teachers um, 
that are present in our life. As we work at a deeper and deeper sense, refuge in the Buddha becomes refuge on the fact that we all have Buddha nature, that within all of us is the awakened one. Awakened mind is in all of us. So um, that is the first refuge. The second refuge of the Dharma, all the teachings that have been left, it's like the, for us to be able to make our way back, for us to understand the intricacies of all that practice involves, um, those are the formal teachings. At a deeper level, the Dharma becomes an understanding of how it is like how reality actually works beyond any idea, beyond any notion, beyond any concept. It's just, we start to be able to see directly how it is. And then that has a profound uh, uh, impact on us. And, and, it, and it, it's almost alchemical, the changes that come. And the third refuge of the Sangha, at one point the Buddha had said apparently that the practice, the whole of the practice was the Sangha in a certain way, because the company we keep, the support that we receive from being with others that are uh, oriented this way and committed to this uh, path of waking up and, and non-harming, um, that, that kind of support is just invaluable. And so um, as we go on, the Sangha eventually becomes like the experience of oneness, the direct understanding that we're part of a single sphere of awareness. And in some of the study groups that I've had, I use a fourth refuge, uh, taking refuge in the Great Mother. And um, when we say it, it's like I take refuge in the Supreme Mother, the perfection of sublime knowing. And sublime knowing in that, in that way is the knowing that straddles both the understanding of the empty nature of things and the relative way in which we work. So that it, it kind of, it's like a bridge between the relative and the absolute. And it's also called the mother of all Buddhas because that depth of understanding is, is through which Buddhas become Buddhas. Understanding, if you will, samsara and nirvana, the absolute and the relative, and how, how they are inseparable, really. And uh, within us, there's a there's a book that I was that I'm going to recommend. I just realized that I left both books in the dining room. If you if you would excuse me, I'm going to run and get them because I want to read something out of one of them. I'll be right back. So the, the first book is um, by, uh, and I, we will list them, but I just wanted you to see it. This is by uh, a Tibetan uh, Lama who's lived in the Bay Area, 
but also ha comes from the indigenous tradition of Nepal, the Bon, and, and it was also in Tibet. And this is called um, the true source of healing. And what's beautiful about that is that he talks about the inner refuges. And he also works with the elements to, see, to understand what do we need in terms of balancing ourselves of the various elements. Most of the time, you know, we, we need one or the other. And so um, he works that way. But then he talks about what are the inner refuges? And he talks about inner silence, stillness, and spaciousness. And of all of them, spaciousness, that openness, what I was referring to when we were babies, that openness is the most transformative. Because <coughs> Being able to let go and almost like relax, we have this tight grip on our ideas, our positions, our identity, uh, all kinds of what we like, what we don't like. We, we, some, you know, we sometimes hold things very, very tightly. If we can sort of relax back and feel a little bit of that spacious quality, it's like from that spacious quality, he talks about hosting it's like hosting our experience. So if it's rage, it's like hosting the rage. But it's, it's like we're not in there lost in it. We're allowing it to be within that spacious ground. And difficult uh, emotions like, for example, hatred and anger which, you know, there's so much, um, there's so much destruction that's brought about by the, just those two emotions. And yet, all human beings at one point or another experience it. And so as practitioners, when those emotions come up, if we can find that spacious quality and allow ourselves to feel those kinds of emotions. We don't go to the story. We stay with just the energy of them. You know, hatred has sort of this icy quality to it. And if you stay just with the energy of it, forget the story, let go of the story, just stay with the energy of it. You stay with it, stay with it, it transforms. And it transforms into amazing clarity. And often we feel powerless when we go into hatred. But if we just stay with that energy, it transforms into the clarity and the power. And this is a power that's not a power over anything or anybody. It's the power of wakefulness, the power of clear seeing. And so these negative uh, energies transform when they are held within the wisdom of the spacious mind. And same with anger. We often experience anger when we feel like our strength is thwarted. And so anger is more of a hot, you know, kind of energy. Again, 
if we are relaxing into that spacious mind and this comes up, staying with that, the energy of it again, not the story, eventually the anger transforms into real strength, a feeling of capacity, like we have the capacity to, to, to meet what we're dealing with. So um, this, this uh, process of hosting our experience, which this book is very helpful with, is, is um, it's a real support during this time. And it's, it's uh, incredibly freeing as we go along in our practice and we start to have a little bit of space from our position and we find the resource of this spacious part of our minds, of our hearts. And at some point, Noli was talking about allowing. In, in some of the very highest teachings, if we are resting in that kind of spacious mind, pretty much the job is to allow experience to unfold. And by the allowing, instead of being caught in a fight with it, if we allow it, when something comes that requires us to step forward and to actually take a stand, we, it becomes very clear and it's very easy to do. And, and when we do, it is appropriate. It's not reactive. It's appropriate to the circumstances. So it, it, uh, it really empowers us to be more, um, to be wiser in how we, how we move in this world, how we take a stand, how, what, what, um, what we invest ourselves in, um, whether it's flexibility and where we have to take a strong stand. And like all of that becomes clearer and clearer. The, the more and more that the spacious mind starts clarifying itself. Um, so again, this perspective is to allow, we suffer a great deal by not being able to have the experiences that we actually have. You know, very few families will turn to a child and say, oh, I see you're angry. Oh, yeah, that makes sense that you would be upset about that. Or, you know, that we all need to be received and understood. It's such a basic human need. And by being received and understood, we, we, our whole nervous system settles and we find, uh, we find ourselves, you know, because we're social beings, we, we are always um, relating. Uh, the whole universe is a related universe. And maybe I'll, I'll bring, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but <laughs> the whole universe works through relationship. So there's a, there's a concept about the balance of tension that holds true within our bodies, within the solar system, within the whole universe. So for example, if we were not in a balance of tension with the atmosphere, our bodies would either explode or they would be compressed. 
but we are in just the right balance. And believe me, sometimes when it's going to rain or something and the barometric pressure changes, we get headaches, we get joint aches, you know, we feel off because that balance is so delicate. So within the body, there's also the balance of tension within all the structures of the body. This earth is in a balance of tension with the sun and all the planets and the moon. All these bodies are in a balance of tension, depending on their mass and the distance and all that. It's this delicate balance. And so the solar system is within the Milky Way and within the galaxy and so on and so on and so on. The whole thing is holding each other, holding the parts. All the parts are always relating. But we live with a legacy of Western philosophy, which is very, you know, with, with the valuing of the rational mind, we've been, we lost so much faculty. There's so much of this understanding that we don't have. The relatedness of everything. And when Martin Luther King talks about this inesca inescapable network of mutuality, he's talking about that. It's not only a human situation, it's the entire universe works like that. So, um, finding a way to come into more relatedness and coming back to our own experience is like actually relating, being able to tune in to our own experience to allow it, to be interested, to even know what it is. I mean, I have struggled sometimes not knowing what I feel or like putting something away so far that I can't even get at it. And sometimes like a little comet, you know, unexpected comet coming by, then a memory or something will come by that seems really significant because it just got put away, you know. So, but there's a longing, a longing for a certain kind of intimacy with our experience. And that kind of intimacy, you know, sometimes we experience it with very ordinary things, you know, like um, there was someone today with, with, uh, with babies, with twins, and, and they're like a year and a half or something. And, and just like the, the, the exquisiteness or the intimacy one has, like as a mother with children or, or, but it could be, you know, Picking up a cup of tea, you know, I just love my cup of tea. The intimacy, anything, anything that we have intimacy with, in a way, reflects back um, awareness. And I'm going to read you something from Zen um, that points to that. We long for that intimacy. And Suzuki Roshi, who brought Zen to the San Francisco Bay Area, um, had said that enlightenment is intimacy with all things. That simple. And so, um, the very, sometimes we think, you know, we have to uh, go get some special training or go to some special retreat or get just the right teaching or read the right books or <clears throat> somehow that it's all out there. But actually, once we have kind of the, the, the nuts and bolts of just paying attention, you know, 
let's say, you know, being aware of our breath and following the breath. If, let's say if, you know, the, the Satipatthana Sutra is one of the most powerful things, you know, just if we could stay just with our breath through activity and just feel the breath, it's like, you know, a thread that you're just following. And that thread, instead of the scattering that normally happens with ordinary life, then that thread kind of brings everything into alignment. And so you stay with the thread of your breath as you go through the day, let's say even today until tomorrow morning experiment, staying with the breath as you do all the various activities. That kind of um, uh, gathering of your attention that way will allow you to start to see how the refuge itself and the freedom, it's in the very fabric of our lives. It doesn't, it's not by going somewhere special. At first we go to retreats and places that, you know, that support us and that help us get going with our practice. But really in the very fabric of our lives, being willing to open our hearts to what's actually going on in our lives, to the difficult, to the blissful, to the, all of it, in the very fabric, is encoded the way to freedom. One of the um, most amazing teachers who used to be a teacher to the Dalai Lama, Dilgachense Rinpoche, he said, you know, we should see our life as a mandala. And when we actually come to the place where we are willing to accept our circumstances, and it doesn't mean that, you know, difficult circumstances you, you pretend they're better they're better if they're difficult they're difficult but that that you accept that what's there is there when we are able to do that we can take our seat in the center of a mandala and then all the objects of our life from the relationships to the place we are to the difficulties we experience when we walk out the door to the bliss of that little bird flying in the wind uh, flying in the door yesterday all of these things become symbols teaching us something, if we have the eyes to see. And so we want intimacy. If, as we become more and more intimate, intimate and, and accept and open to the unfolding and the details of our lives, there's a pleasure that arises that is just the pleasure of staying awake and staying connected. It, it's not dependent on some fancy thing or another. It's just the fact that we are there. Just like a mother with its baby right there. We are there with our experience. And for some of us who as children were not allowed to have so much, you know, so much of our experience was made wrong or whatever. The fact that we can give ourselves that at this point through our practice is incredibly healing. And so um, I'm going to read you, you know, Dogen, who was the originator of Soto Zen. I think Jozen has a background in this tradition. And um, this book, The Wholehearted Way, there's a, a passage here that I've never found any other Buddhist teacher writing about this. So I want to read you because it talks about the relatedness between the person sitting, the person practicing, and all the myriad things, everything that surrounds us, and how 
the interplay in the process of waking up. And so, he says, there is a path through which the incomparable awareness of all things returns to the person in zazen, in meditation, and whereby that person and the enlightenment of all things intimately and imperceptibly assist each other. Grasses and trees, fences and walls demonstrate and exalt it for the sake of living beings, both ordinary and sage. And in turn, living beings, both ordinary and sage, express and unfold it for the sake of grasses and trees, fences and walls. These various mutual influences do not mix into the perception of the person sitting because they take place within stillness without any fabrication and they are enlightenment itself. And just to, uh, uh, to say that Zazen, in the way Dogen talks about Zazen, it's in a way related to the noble silence that the Buddha, uh, uh, in Buddha's time, was, they were talking about. And it's really when we are resting in our original nature, when we are um, in that non-conceptual timeless awareness. And so within that, it's possible to perceive this relationship with all that exists. And in the, in the uh, footnotes to that, it says, the active realization embodied and supported in self-fulfilling samadhi, and this self-fulfilling samadhi, again, is the resting in that nature, includes not only humans and other creatures, but even the land and soil and the grasses and trees, fences and walls, tiles and pebbles that Dogen mentions. Even things considered inanimate objects in Western philosophy vitally partake of this awakening and mutually resonate to encourage the subtle, mysterious Buddha guidance or influence in all, in all of us. So um, we are being guided constantly. In other places, they say, you know, all the Buddhas and Tathagata, they're always broadcasting. It's just a matter of whether we're tuning in. The earth, the natural world, there's a wisdom inherent in the natural world. There's an order there. It's broadcasting. So the whole of the phenomenal world comes out of the empty ground. All that exists is the radiation of that ground. So there's a unity to all that is manifesting. And so because it's all coming from that ground, that's why the fences, the walls, the trees. Uh, uh, when I've been living now in this place for 22 years, I moved here when I was working with Marlene because I was living in Oakland and she was here and 
that's how I ended up in this place. <laughs> um, I've done so much retreat here. Lamas have come and stayed here. And so sometimes I, I wake up and I don't feel so great. And I just go to my, uh, what would have been my living room. It's like a shrine room now. I don't socialize much here. And, and the energy there is so strong that it, it, it brings me back. And I do a few prostrations and I'm sort of on track again. So the, the uh, environment where, we, where you sit, where you meditate, if you keep uh, doing it in the same place, it's like the preciousness of your chair, your shawl, the bell, whatever objects you have there that are part of your practice, they become an incredible support and they start resonating. It's like the awakened quality of mind is present in all that exists. It's present in your mind and it's present in everything. So it's sort of like, can we learn to recognize the isness of everything in that isness is what we all are, what everything is, is in that isness and it's in that intimacy. It's when there's no gap between us and whatever it is that we are relating to. So we're, we're coming to the end of our time and I just um, want to be sure to uh, dedicate there's incredible benefit when people like this get together. We are going from old narratives that were not serving life. We need new, new narratives. And so as practitioners, we can dream, we can envision new narratives and new ways of living that serve life, that bring back balance. And so I pray that and dedicate that our time together will serve a new, not only a new vision, but a new reality that it be possible for us and all future generations so that balance returns to our earth and that freedom, justice, peace, and love prevail. And I thank you all for your beautiful hearts and your attention today. <laughs>